This is Africa Digest. It's a hello from Ms. Pomelele Zondi, 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 15235 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to West Africa. In studio with me is Asanda Matonyane. There's also Isanda Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. Mixed reactions in South Sudan over President Salva Kiir's decision to create 28 new states to replace the 10. Race relations in South Africa under the spotlight after a white woman called black people monkeys in social media. And here's Asanda Mazzaunyane with the news. Good afternoon. German police have given the all-clear after investigating five items delivered to Chancellor Angela Merkel's office in central Berlin. Officers had cordoned off the chancellery as ministers gathered for a morning cabinet meeting inside. Germany and other European powers have been on particularly high alert since Islamist militants killed 130 people in Paris on November 13. The cabinet meeting went ahead as planned. In 2010, police intercepted a package in Merkel's mail room at the chancellery, which Interior Minister Thomas de Maizière said contained explosives sent from Greece. Also in Germany, the cabinet there has approved plans to send up to 650 soldiers to Mali. This in efforts of boosting its presence in the UN peacekeeping mission in the West African country, which is beset by Islamic militant violence. The cabinet has also agreed to increase the numbers of soldiers training Kurdish Peshmerga forces in northern Iraq. The majority of the German forces who will start going to Mali in the coming weeks will be stationed in the north of the country, which has seen an upsurge of violence by Islamist militants. Germany sent troops there in 2013 as part of a European Union mission to train local security forces. South Africa's Human Rights Commission says it has been inundated with complaints regarding racism on social media. This after prominent economist Chris Hart and former estate agent Penny Sparrow, as well as fitness enthusiast Justin von Furen, wrote defamatory comments on their timelines about black beachgoers. The commission's Dieketzing Diale has urged South Africans to familiarize themselves with the constitution. Since we have requested all South Africans to uh, log in or lodge in complaints with us, the Human Rights Commission, we will officially release uh, the statistical information early next week. Or with regards to the media slurs and the comments, inflammatory comments that we, you know, saw making rounds within social media of that were made by the likes of Penny Sparrow. The executive director of Malawi's Center for the Development of the People, Sedeb Gift Trapens, 
has described as criminal in nature remarks made by People's Party Publicity and Administrative Secretary Ken Sonda in which he called for the killing of homosexual people. Reacting to the remarks which have been widely criticized by many quarters, Trapens says rights and laws which govern the country protect everybody in equal measure regardless of their sexual orientation. Sonda posted the defamatory remarks on his Facebook over the weekend, adding that gays were worse than dogs. The Malawi Law Society has also condemned Sonda's comments and called on Malawi Human Rights Commission and police to investigate the statement and take appropriate action. South Africa's paramedics company ER24 has urged people to be cautious during the heat wave currently being experienced across the country. The medical emergency company says its paramedics have attended to several incidents involving people affected. ER24 has cautioned that severe heat exhaustion could lead to heat stroke, which may result in people losing consciousness, experiencing seizures, and going into cardiac arrest. ER spokesperson, ER24 spokesperson Chitra Bodesing. Remember to stay hydrated. Try to stay out of direct sunlight. If you are outside, seek shade or shelter. Also remember to use sunscreen. Wear loose clothing, a hat if outside, as well as sunglasses. If you are in an office or at home, ensure that the area around you is well ventilated. Do not lay outside in direct sunlight. Ensure that they are hydrated as well. Keep a close eye on babies and the elderly. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. It's 17.05 Central African time. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that update. Citizens of South Sudan have expressed mixed reactions on President Salva Kiir's decision to create 28 new states to replace the 10 states that have been in the country for more than 50 years. James Shimanyula reports. The people of South Sudan have made varying comments on President Salva Kiir's unilateral decision to create 28 new states. To make matters complicated, President Kiir has appointed 28 governors all loyal to him to run the states. Already the United States and its partners in the Troika for South Sudan has expressed what it describes as serious concern over Kiir's decision to replace Africa's newest nation's 10 states with 28 new states. The U.S. and the Troika played a pivotal role in ensuring that President Salva Kiir and his principal rival Riek Machar signed a peace agreement in August last year. Also breathing fire over the creation of 28 states in South Sudan is the country's rebel leader Riek Machar, who has made it clear that the creation of the states is a violation of the agreement he signed with President Kiir. Now let us hear voices of a cross-section of South Sudan citizens on the creation of the new states. I'm calling you Creation of 28 states in South Sudan I think that one is just a taking of towns to villages. So people are happy on that. My name is Agnes. For me, I'm happy of it. It's okay though, to divide the state. It's okay. Yeah, of course. They have to create peace among themselves. People have to be united because now each people are going to have their own state. 
Uh, my name is Lucky Samson. Yeah, creating 28 states. If president really create these states, maybe after that one, maybe some jobs, maybe job opportunities will come out and then maybe to their citizens also. James Kenyara, I think that is a good drive towards the transfer of power from the central government to the local authorities. And that one obviously will... Uh, Weekend, the delivery of services to the local people. For this state to be announced, it should be justified. Why 28? What was the criteria? My name is Maulana Nyangajisindeng. I'm really very happy. All this time, the citizens of South Sudan, they were in a position to be given this demand. And we are ready as used to stand behind of our president for implementation of peace. We are very concerned and committed with the decision taken by the president for the creation of 28 states in the Republic of South Sudan. It's a good initiative by the president, but he took the decision in a, let me not say in a wrong time, but we are still even, with, we do not settle many things that he has to put them right. And then he had to take the decision and create the 28 state. It's not a bad idea, but my fear is the fund or the resource of funding all these 28 states because where are we going to get the money to implement or to support all these states? Mixed voices of South Sudanese on President Salva Kiri's unilateral decision to create 28 new states. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The international organization has said that the Democratic Republic of Congo has a lot to do in order to absorb its migrants from rural areas and make sure they gain a decent life in the cities. Thousands of people migrate every year from the rural areas to the cities and from provinces to the country's capital city of Kinshasa due to several reasons, including insecurity, especially in the eastern DRC. Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa. There are indeed so many reasons pushing people in these countries' rural areas to migrate to different cities where they hope to improve their living situation. Those internal migration reasons include the security situation that forces so many people out of the rural areas where they do not feel safe due to the presence of armed groups to the cities for more safety, according to the International Organization for Migration. Besides this, many other people leave the rural areas or the provinces to come and live here in the country's capital city, Kinshasa, for economic reasons. Since they hope to develop some business here or get a job they couldn't access in rural areas. This is the reason why the DRC government has a lot to do in order to absorb the thousands of internal migrants coming into the cities. Philippe Chosy is the IUM chief of mission here. Kinshasa is one of those mega cities. Uh, it is part of the world's top 20 cities. We're seeing it in Kinshasa. People are coming to Kinshasa because there is economic growth in Kinshasa. There are jobs to be found, uh, including in the informal sector. Again, for those mega cities that are growing in all parts of the world, and again, bear in mind that by 2050, you'll probably have 6.9 billion people living in cities. This needs to be manage. In other words, you need to already think about the programs or policies that will be able to take, if you want, and to absorb 
those migrants and make sure that everyone in those cities have a decent life. We are in the world of mobility of migration with about 230 million international migrants and an estimated 800 internal migrants. We're looking at probably more than a billion people today on the move. Migration when it is properly managed and urbanization which is properly managed is a factor of growth. People are on the move, they are very often forced to move, they do not choose to migrate, they are forced to migrate and therefore we believe that a lot more work needs to be done. Meanwhile, so many other Congolese citizens have migrated out of the DRC since years due to several reasons including war and different other conflicts in some parts of this country. The real number of those Congolese living abroad is not even well known, although they are estimated between seven and 8,000, according to the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs in charge of Congolese living abroad, Antoine Boyamba. Every embassy was previously using its own card, but now we have put in place a unique card, a kind of registration that will let us know those who remain Congolese, since those who register at the embassy will get the card, and this will put things clear. Most of analysts here wonder how come the DRC government doesn't know up to now the number of Congolese citizens living in other countries while they have embassies in different countries of the world. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Cameroon's military has been encouraging children who escaped after their schools were either burned or transformed by Boko Haram training camps to return. Some are seeking education in safer locations. The initiative comes after a UNICEF report published in December 2016 states that a million children lack education. Moki Kinzega is in Yaoundé. Kwene Ekwele, one of the senior commanders of Cameroon troops fighting the Boko Haram insurgency, pleads with villagers of Kerawa on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria's Bono State to send their children to school. He says the Cameroon military is meeting the villagers to assure them of their protection from Boko Haram fighters and encourage parents to send their children back to school from wherever they are hiding. He says they are fighting Boko Haram so that every Cameroonian child should go to school, every farmer should work freely in his farm, and people should go around freely. He says the villagers should have confidence in their military. The remote Kerewa village has been a war zone since Boko Haram extended its attacks from Nigeria to Cameroon in a bid to create an Islamist state three years ago. Two schools in the area were burned by the insurgents in December last year. Ibrahim Joel Mohammed, Cameroon's far north regional delegate for basic education, says hundreds of the village's school goers fled to safer locations in Cameroon's hinterlands. He says since the month of April this past year, more than 33,000 primary school children have been displaced by the Boko Haram insurgency 
in the far north region of Cameroon. Among the students who have escaped and are seeking education in safer areas is Mbwake David, the 17-year-old now studying at a government bilingual high school in Marwa does not imagine returning to his village soon. He says he cannot risk his life by returning to his village where there is war. He says the best thing was that he ran for his life. In March 2015, Cameroon launched an $8 million emergency plan to construct schools in safer locations away from volatile areas overrun by Boko Haram. 200 classrooms, dormitories and latrines for 70,000 students were to be built. The United Nations Children's Fund UNICEF said more than 2,000 schools have been closed in Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad and Niger while hundreds of others have been attacked, looted, or set on fire by Boko Haram fighters in their quest to create an independent Islamic state. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzika in Yaoundé. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Seventeen eighteen Central African time, you're still listening to Africa Digest. With me is Pomelele Zondi on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A new report by human rights organization Survival International has revealed appalling suicide rates among indigenous Guarani Kaiowa people of southern Brazil as the highest in the world. The rate of self-inflicted deaths within the tribe is 34 times the Brazilian national average and statistically the highest among any society in the world. The report Progress Can Kill exposes the consequences of loss of land and autonomy on tribal people. It also reveals high rates of alcoholism, depression and other health problems. Survival International has called on the United Nations to enforce a better protection of tribal land rights. More from Sophie Grigg, who is a campaigner at Survival International. 
Survival's released a report called Progress Can Kill, which is exposing the devastating impact of forcing development and the loss of land or the theft of land on tribal peoples around the world. And, and one of the, the sort of key headline facts that we pulled out was the, that the Guarani Kiowa in, in Brazil have the highest rate of suicide in the world. And because they've been forced off their land because of huge amounts of development projects going on around them, suicide is rife alcoholism, desperation, terrible malnutrition resulting in, in children dying in, in one of the richest parts of, of Brazil. Of many cases where tribal peoples, when they forced off their land, and, and often this is done in the name of development, supposedly to, to bring progress to them because of, of a, um, racist views, really, that tribal people's way of life is in some way backward or primitive. And, but the efforts to interfere and intervene and, and bring supposed progress to tribal peoples has been devastating. And even in, in the world's richest countries, you see that Aboriginal peoples in Australia, their life expectancy is still 10 to 15 years lower than other uh, Australians. The, the tragedy is that none of this has to happen because actually for tribal peoples, real progress is having their land rights recognized to be able to live on their land and to be able to make their own choices and to choose and control the sort of development they want. So it's not to say that tribal peoples don't want certain things. They might want schooling and healthcare and clinics, but they want it on their own terms and on their own land and not have it imposed upon them by outsiders. Is the government of Brazil perhaps an accommodative of that and, you know, considering the fact that they do want to have all the amenities that um, everybody else could have, but just on their terms? Well, in some places in Brazil, there, there have been positive stories. So, for example, the Yanomami in the Amazon, after a 23-year campaign by survival, they had their land rights recognized. And after that, there, there had been gold mining on the land, and, and the miners had brought in lots of diseases and and. and there was a, a project that worked, a medical teams working with the local people on their own land now um, and, and working with the shamans, and they managed to halve the, the death rate from, from those outside diseases. And so there are positive examples, but unfortunately not enough recognition is given to the importance of, of land to tribal peoples. And, and it, with the Guarani in, in Brazil, it's, it's a question of, of political will to sign the documents to recognize their land and to allow them to be able to live on their land in peace. Another interesting point we see in your report is striking statistics uh, which include the skyrocketing rates of HIV infections in West Papau, uh, which increased from almost no cases in the year 2000 to just over 10,000 in 2015. What can be attributed to this? In, in West Papua, the situation is terrible. The HIV rate there is 15 times anywhere else in, in Indonesia, so it's really dramatic that the problem there and this is a lot to do with the imposition of, of road building, um, mining, logging, companies coming in and bringing in outsiders there and the disruption of, of, of tribal people's way of life because of that and again a lot of this is to do with a racism and a, a treatment of tribal peoples as, as backward and needing to needing to be developed whereas actually it it results in the theft of their land and and this terrible rise in in, in sexual diseases and and the HIV is, is a horrible example of that 
What can you tell us about the situation in terms of the Khoisan people in Botswana as far as you know development and their land rights are concerned? The Bushman people in Botswana were supposedly in the name of development moved into relocation camps that the Bushmen themselves refer to as places of death. In fact, the Bushmen say, what sort of development is this where, where our people live shorter lives than before and we catch HIV and AIDS and our children are beaten at school and you know they're not allowed to hunt they're not allowed on their land to be able to to live how they want to on their land and and, and this is you know supposedly in the name of progress and development they're put into these centers where their lives are demonstrably much worse than they they are when they're on their own land and so this is another example of where supposedly development view of tribal peoples needing progress actually has a disastrous impact on their health and their their way of life. Survival International has for years been calling on different governments around the world as well as the United Nations to enforce better protection of tribal land rights. But are we seeing governments upholding their commitments to, to the indigenous people? Unfortunately, not not nearly as much as, as we would want to see. I mean, there, there have been developments, certainly, in things like the, the United Nations recognition on the rights of indigenous and tribal peoples. There's wide take-up from that and governments ratifying it. But unfortunately, we're not seeing, in most cases, that actually being implemented on the ground and tribal people's land rights are not being recognized. And, and there is still, sadly, this notion in many places of tribal people's being backward and, and, and needing development, whereas actually what tribal peoples need is their land and then to be able to make their own choices. And, and, and so we're still calling absolutely for more to be done, more recognition of tribal people's land rights. That is Sophie Grigg, who is a campaigner at Survival International, talking to Kumoto Mopolane. It's 17.25 Central African Time right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The program we're listening to is Africa Digest with me, Spumelele Zondi. Complaints about the inflammatory racial comments recently made in social networks continue to pile up in the Human Rights Commission of South Africa. Various political parties and the general public have lodged complaints against and Amongst other economists, Chris Hart suspended DA member Penny Sparrow and the DA's deputy chief whip, Mike Waters, accusing them of racism. Waters, who is also the DA's shadow health minister, posted a picture of a dog urinating on a poster of President Jacob Zuma. Sparrow from Scottsburg in KwaZulu-Natal made headlines after she referred to black African beachgoers as monkeys who littered Durban beaches. Meanwhile, the DA in KwaZulu-Natal has called on South Africans not to judge the party by the conduct of a few of its members. The Human Rights Commission of South Africa says it will officially release statistics of complaints made by South Africans after inflammatory racial comments made against some sections of society. This after suspended DA member Penis Perro labeled black beach goers monkeys on her Facebook page. Spero wrote that blacks were responsible for the deaths and litter on Deppen speeches. After Sparrow's shorty apology, which further angered people on social networks, the public has demanded a proper apology from her. Human Rights Commission of South Africa's Diketseng Dayale has urged South Africans to familiarize themselves with the constitution of the Republic of South Africa. Yes, since we have requested all South Africans to uh, log in or lodge in complaints with us, the Human Rights Commission, 
we will officially release uh, the statistical information early next week. We still continue to appeal to South Africans to familiarize themselves with the constitution of this country, the chapter 2 of the Bill of which is the Bill of Rights. The A-leader Nguazul Natal's Wakelem Nwango says the party should not be made to carry the sins of some of its undisciplined members. And we will deal with the matter very, very decisively. And we want to also make it clear to the society in South Africa that uh, racists are not welcome in the DA and they have no place in our democratic South African society. The DA has laid a criminal charge against Penny Sparrow and we believe a racist comment has been made uh, publicly. Meanwhile, ANC spokesperson Zizi Godwa says inflammatory racial comments are a violation of human dignity. We need to punish racists. It's important to criminalize. Unless we take an action, a person like Penny would make a mistake and apologize because there is no action that has been taken except to apologize or to be suspended by a party. We think that Human Rights Commission must come and defend and promote human rights in this country because without human rights in this country, we'll continue to have this kind of utterances which seeks to undermine and dehumanize black majority in this country. Several people and organizations have opened criminal cases against people responsible for racist comments on social networks. It was also reported that Sparrow was admitted in hospital for stress after the public outrage. I'm Tlantangwele in Deben. It's info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. That's how you can get hold of us on email. If you want to find us on social media and follow us there and engage with us as well, we are on Channel Africa 1, Channel Africa Numerical 1. It's time for news headlines. Here's Asanda Mataunyan. Good afternoon. German police give the all clear after investigating five items delivered to Chancellor Angela Merkel's office in central Berlin. South Africa's Human Rights Commission says it has been inundated with complaints regarding racism on social media and the executive director of Malawi's Center for the Development of the People, SEDEP, Gift Trapens, has described as criminal in nature remarks made by People's Party Publicity and Administrative Secretary Ken Sonda, in which he called for the killing of homosexual people. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
A TB drug specifically designed for children, combining sweet flavors and the correct dosage in a dissolvable tablet, is expected to hit the markets this month. The tablet was developed through a partnership between the TB Alliance, the World Health Organization, and the United States government and is meant to improve drug regime adherence among children in the developing world. In our weekly focus on health issues, Elizabeth Ledecha takes a look at how this drug will change the way TB is treated in children. With a simplified and improved treatment form for tuberculosis, estimates show that around 1 million children will be treated from this highly infectious disease. At present, giving accurate and appropriate treatment of TB to children remains a challenge. Doctors and parents in many developing countries often rely on crushing or splitting tablets with adult dosages when treating children with TB. But it's expected that the sweeter, child-friendly tablet will turn the situation around. Professor Linda Gail Becker is the Deputy Director for the Desmond Tutu HIV Center in South Africa, a non-profit organization. What is unique and very exciting about this from a pediatric viewpoint is that they have been co-formulated in pediatric doses and in ways that children can take the treatment more easily. So despite the fact that TB has been with us for so long, listeners may be amazed to hear that actually when it comes to children dosing, we've had to break tablets, you know, score tablets and give them to children in sort of reduced doses by breaking tablets apart. What the TB Alliance and others have done now is they've created this three-in-one drug that actually is formulated in doses that are compatible with children. So that's the breakthrough. The drug is not new, but will be an improved combination of existing TB treatments, such as rifampicin, isoniazid, and paracinamide, specially designed for children. But why has it taken so long for this child-specific drug to be made? Professor Becker again. Well, you know, unfortunately, I think too often... Pediatrics and children fall between the cracks. So when drugs get formulated, when drugs get developed, the eye is very much on the adult market. And it's only really recently that drug regulators have been insisting that pharmaceutical companies actually have to think about the pediatric market and they have to think about how their drugs, one, can be tested efficiently in children and again it's always harder to test a drug in a minor or in a child somebody who isn't able to give consent for themselves and so it means you have to have parental consent there's obviously a lot of concern about experimentation in children and so too often pharmaceutical companies won't actually go down that road. While introducing a new drug can often be problematic, she says she hopes it won't be the case this time around. Like all new drugs or new formulations, it has to be approved by our regulator, who is the Medicines Control Council of South Africa. That application needs to be reviewed and then approvals need to come through. We're hoping that something like this will be prioritized, but, you know, one can only wait and hope for the best that approval will come through quickly. The tablet will be manufactured by the Indian pharmaceutical company McLeod's. Kenya, which has one of the highest burdens of TB, could be one of the first markets where the drug will be sold. Like some experts, 
the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lungs, Dr. Paula Fujiwara, is concerned that even with such positive developments, there might not be enough funding to make the drug widely available. We have to think broadly in terms of having governments to really put new investments in, look to our external donors like the Global Fund to increase the resources needed for tuberculosis, but also look for innovative new funding, new donors who are also interested, but also insurance schemes, etc. that I think that we will, it will be difficult, but it's going to be necessary because the cost of inaction is that we don't get any better. Echoing Fujiwara's sentiments, the union's executive director, Jose Luis Castro, says the child-friendly TB drug is foolproof that countries need to invest in new tools to fight the disease. We really need to shift the way in which we work. We need to invest more in the development of new tools. And over the next five years, you know, the countries of the world really must commit themselves to take you know, concerted efforts to end tuberculosis. Otherwise, we will not achieve those goals by 2035. The World Health Organization estimates that around 1 million children fell ill with TB in 2014, while 140,000 died from the lung disease. However, only around a third of those who catch the disease are officially diagnosed and put on treatment. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Finding practical solutions to the challenges that Afghan women face accessing education and health services was the focus of a day-long workshop held recently in the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul. Some 50 people took part in the event, including the principal of a girls' high school who said many of her students do not get to finish their education due to early marriage. The workshop was organized by the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, UNEMA, and it also looked at ways to increase women's overall participation in society. Hamed Halemi reports. Access to education and health services, increasing the role of women in society, these are just some of a few difficult areas for many women in Afghanistan. At the UN workshop, participants discussed some practical solutions to the problems Afghan women face. Kabul's deputy provincial governor, Mohibullah Mohibi, said the province is committed to providing more opportunities for women to participate in decision-making, especially at the district level. In each district, we have a council of the people where we have representatives of all sectors and villages. This is a decision-making body at the district level. The needs of the people are prioritized by the members of the council. Unfortunately, the presence of women is insufficient in some districts. We don't have women members in some of the councils. We are trying to increase their presence in decision-making, program development and implementations. Kabul Provincial Council member Said Ayari said the workshop is a welcome opportunity to hear directly from women and noted that coordination among relevant government and non-government organizations needs to be improved. There are many activities but no coordination. We can get better results if we improve coordination of our activities. The Provincial Council fully supports this issue. Men and women have equal rights under the Afghan constitution and they should benefit from this provision. Wrapping up the workshop, the head of UNAMA's central field office, Gabriela Erebarna, retreated UNAMA's commitment to the promotion of women's rights. We will be following up 
some of these issues. Some of the issues we will address with district authorities, some of them directly with the governor's office, some of them with the specific line departments. We will not be able to bring change overnight, but we give you our commitment to continue this discussion and to in fact take this opportunity to meet, to continue talking to you in the coming years. Since the fall of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan in 2001, there has been noted progress on women's rights in Afghanistan, compared to when women were totally excluded from society. There are, for example, 64 members of the parliament. The constitution sets down that there must be a minimum of 25% female representation. There are four women cabinet ministers and one provincial governor and many women across the country are active in public life and have more opportunities. However, many women still face tremendous difficulties in their life in Afghanistan. The UN is committed to supporting their equal participation and full rule in their own country. Hamid Halimi reporting for the UN Radio, Kabul. Following the historic visit late last year by the Chinese President Xi Jinping to Zimbabwe unlocking investment opportunities for both Zimbabweans and Chinese, a new company, Granton Merriwell, has been born and has already started producing buses. Merriwell is a Zimbabwean entity, while Granton is an automobile Chinese company. The $10 million US dollar project entails that the Zimbabwean company will be assembling buses locally using its own design and local material but the engines and technical support comes from China. Barely a month following the Chinese president's visit to Zimbabwe, a prototype bus has been assembled and is in Harare ready for the market. According to the Zimbabwean partners, the bus would be only of its type would be the only one of its type built specifically for the African roads and extreme hot weather conditions. More from our correspondent Simon Nchema is in Harare. The sound of a Chinese-made bus in Zimbabwe signifies the beginning of greater things to come due to the China-Zimbabwe relationship sealed by President Xi Jinping and President Mugabe in December. Although a deal had already been entered into between a Zimbabwean transport company, Merriwell and Chinese Granton Automobile at the time of the Chinese leader, visited his coming was seen as a catalyst to the bus production that has already started currently the assembling is being made in china as the new company finalizes construction of the new assembly plant 45 kilometers west of the capital in norton according to norman manyere the design of the buses is purely zimbabwean but built using the machinery and technological support from granton a chinese entity According to him, this is as a result of China-Zimbabwe relations cementing the Look East policy adopted by President Robert Mugabe and his government in the early 2000s. Following a feasibility study, it was noted most buses coming to Africa and especially Zimbabwe would not last as they were not specifically made for Africa. Norman Manyevere, chief executive officer of the new Major Granton Merriwell, said, all the designs and material on the bus were Zimbabwean. So the Chinese actually helped us in building the bus. But our main target is after we've built the bus, and this bus is, we've got exclusive rights to this bus. Even right now, if you go to China, 
if you ask about this pass, you won't find it unless it has been given an order by us. Yeah, this is the only type of bus that you can find in the world in terms of the specifications. But in terms of the concept of Grenton, there are so many Grenton owned by Grenton. But in terms of the specification of this bus, this bus is called GTM 6120E3. Is the code that we have used for that bus. Manyevere said Zimbabwe and a number of African countries, especially in the Sadak region, have lost huge sums of money importing cheap quality buses, resulting in increased road carnages. Zimbabwe is rated as one of the countries with a high road carnage due to poor roads requiring strong buses specifically designed for the African terrain and rough weather conditions. As a result, the GTM bus, the only product of its own kind in the world, has been produced. It's now going to be the fusion of the, our design of the chassis and the board of Grenton, which is a Grenton Common of China, and uh, the Merwell concept of the chassis. So we came out with a, with a bus uh, called the GTM bus, meaning Grenton and Merwell. Just call it Grenton Merwell. So from there, we then changed our name to Grenton Merwell. Why we changed our name is now we are now concentrating on the product, which is for Africa, which is for Zimbabwe, uh, designed by a Zimbabwean and made for Zimbabwe and Africa as the whole. So when we, we did that, we then signed an agreement, uh, a distribution agreement that you have designed, come out with the design, so you are going to be the distributor of that bus instead of just distributing their bus so we are now distributing our own product it's just it was designed by africans by by an african and by a zimbabwean but it was only just assembled by the european which is uh, german and china although the type of bus being produced is other parts from germany and china the beneficiation idea brought about this concept President Robert Mugabe and Sadak are preaching of value addition to all the natural resources from the Sadak countries, and this would help boost African economy. E3 means Euro engine. It's a European 3, version 3 engine. Okay. Yes, it's a Euro 3 engine. This bus and this engine, when I talk of this bus, I'm talking of the chassis now and the engine. When it was made uh, in, in Germany, it also went through some tests of some sort. And I'm glad to say, if you look into your books, into the internet and so forth, it actually won the best fuel saver type of engine, the Euro 3 engine in the world. So it's a fuel saver bus, which is also a plus to our nation or to our African. It's an advantage to us because we, as a major player in the transportation of people and uh, uh, road transport, it's a plus than other buses which are coming from other countries is is input i mean reporting for channel africa in harare zimbabwe this is simon muchemwa your time is 17.46 Central African time right here on channel africa the voice of the african renaissance he has your economic news
Good evening. Thanks, uh, Sipumelele. The South African Institute for International Relations uh, says uh, the fruit and wine industry will be hardest hit if South Africa is excluded from the AGOA. Spokesperson for the organization, Cyril Prinslow, says if South Africa loses its privileges, fruit and wine will become too expensive to compete in the U.S. If South Africa and the U.S. can't, can't conclude the, the negotiations, President Obama follows through on his, on his notice to cancel South Africa's preferences to AGOA. It would mean that South African agricultural exports uh, would lose their preferential market access. And meanwhile, economists uh, say South Africa may have to import maize at a higher price. Christo Yobe from the National Agricultural Marketing Council says the crippling drought has forced many farmers out of business. On the supply side from the farmers, there is a lot of farmers that couldn't plant. The northeast province already came out of a very dry season and that put a lot of strain on the bottom line and on the sustainability of the farmers. We all, I already have heard that around about 40 farmers is out of business in, in the northwest province and some in, also in the free state. We're not sure what the further impact will be, but we can expect that some of, some of our farmers will go out of, out of business. Listed companies in Egypt are increasingly issuing bonus shares to avoid a tax on cash dividends. The move is dealing a blow to the country's drive to boost tax revenues. In July 2014, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Assisi approved a 10% tax on cash dividends on the stock market as part of his efforts to overhaul an economy battered by years of turmoil. The Cairo Boz has already previously been exempt from taxes on dividends. And Algeria's foreign exchange reserves have dropped by 6.3 billion US dollars to 152.7 billion US dollars in the third quarter of 2015. This has global crude oil prices plunged. The North African OPEC member relies heavily on energy earnings, which make up 95% of total exports and account for 60% of the country's budget. Algeria's balance of payments deficit has increased to $20.8 billion in the first month, in the first nine months of 2015 from $3 billion for the same period the previous year. And the crude oil prices have reached new record lows uh, despite tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Brent crude oil has retreated almost 1% to 11-year lows. This comes as concerns over growing supply and raising stock levels outweigh tensions in the Middle East. Brent crude is currently trading at 35 US dollars per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you very much. And your sports news with Mosibudi Makura.
Today, sports fans and starting off with cricket news, Hashim Amla has stepped down as a captain of the Proteus Test Team. Amla was named captain of the Test Team back in June 2014 after the retirement of Graham Smith. The decision by Cricket South Africa at that time came as a surprise with many experts expecting the reins to be handed to A.B. de Villiers who already captained the ODI side. Meanwhile, the second test between the Proteus and England in Cape Town has ended in a draw and the end bad line and a bit of rain had forced the players off the field. A disappointing end to a match that South Africa quite simply pulled out the fire. Now to football news. The annual CAF Awards enters its 24th edition this year and the awards gala will take place for the first time in as many years in the Nigerian capital Abuja on Thursday. The King of African Football will be crowned at the International Conference Centre in Abuja amongst the trio of Yaya Tore, the winner of the last four editions, Gabonese forward Pierre Imerek Abuba Young and Ghana's Andre Ayum. Channel Africa's Tony Ban is in Lagos, Nigeria and found this report. The biggest accolade will be the African Player of the Year and of course that of the African Player of the Year based in Africa. The winner will be decided by votes of the coaches or technical directors of the national associations affiliated to the Confederation of African Football CAF. The nominees for the African Player of the Year are Andrew Ayu, Ghana and Swansea and indeed Pierre Emrick Abiyam that is from Gabon and of course he plays his trade with Borussia Dortmund and Yaya Toure Côte d'Ivoire Manchester City who we have seen you know winning it back to back and back to back. Still on football news, Cote d'Ivoire coach Michel Dussier has named a strong 23-man squad for the upcoming Chan tournament that is set to take place from the 16th of January up until the 7th of February in Rwanda. Cote d'Ivoire are camping in South Africa where they will play two friendly games against Guinea on Friday and Nigeria on the 11th of January as they prepare to take on hosts Rwanda in the opening game of the tournament. Cote d'Ivoire is in Group A along with Gabon, Morocco and hosts Rwanda and will make their third appearance at the Chan tournament, having hosted the inaugural edition back in 2009 and competed in Sudan at the 2011 edition. And finally, rugby news. With the 2016 Rio Olympics seven months away, teams which have um, have qualified for the showpiece are already preparing for the um, for the global showpiece. Those with the means and the money have put in um, a plan. Um, have put in place a tangible plan. Big rugby nations are already negotiating for the release of some of their players who are contracted to their clubs and franchises. Such nations are Kenya, Channel Africa's Francis Mutegis and Nairobi Kenya and found this report. Richard Omuela, the Kenya Rugby Union chairman, has raised the red flag after World Rugby cleared Kenya Lionesses to the Olympics following the unavailability of South Africa. Kenya accepted the gesture by the World Rugby, which Omuela reckons is a lifetime dream for any athletes to compete at the biggest stage. The KRU chairman observed that Kenya Lionesses at the moment cannot hold their grounds against some of the big countries like New Zealand, Australia and England and therefore KRU will need resources from the government and the National Olympics Committee of Kenya NOC to prepare both teams for the Olympics. Both here includes the men's side. Bazaar Sports News at the Sawa stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
This is Africa Digest. Your time is 17.54 Central African time. Let's take a look at our top stories. Mixed reactions in South Sudan over President Salva Kiir's decision to create 28 new states. Race relations in South Africa under the spotlight after a white woman called black people monkeys. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Lebumana Mahulu, technical producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thanks for listening. For comments, send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS, plus 27823325905, plus 27823325905. And on Twitter, Channel Africa One, we leave you with Ringo Madlingozi Sondel. Don't get too
Yeah. 